Welcome to the Central Christian Church Podcast. We pray this message helps you find and follow Jesus. If you would like to connect with us more, please visit us at centralsj.org. Hey, how many of you have ever played the game Tug of War? You're familiar with the game Tug of War, two teams, there's a rope in the middle, the object of the game is to pull the other team across the center line. I don't know if you're familiar with some of the history of tug of war, but actually the ancient Egypt played tug of war. Ancient China used tug of war as a test of strength for military recruits. Greece, there was accounts of tug of war being played in competitive sports during the Olympic Games. I don't know if we have any Olympic fans in the house, uh, but some Olympic history in 1900 through 1920, tug of war was an Olympic sport. You might find it interesting to note that in 1904, St. Louis, Missouri, shout out to God's country. Uh, uh, (laughs) Right, Roger? It's Missouri, not Missouri, but Roger can clear that up later. Um, In 1904, St. Louis, Missouri hosted the Olympic Games and the U.S. submitted four teams into the tug-of-war competition. In 1904, the United States brought home gold, silver, and bronze in this tug-of-war event. In the next year, next time we got smoked. But, but it was a good year, 1904. Guinness Book of World Records records in February 2016 that the world's largest tug-of-war tournament took place in India with 4,672 people competing in this tug-of-war tournament. Just one tournament. Well, today the Apostle Paul is going to be teaching us about another kind of tug-of-war, a tug-of-war that you experience on a daily basis, A tug of war that takes place not just in your heart, not just in your home, but on a global scale. Before we jump in, though, I want to just say congratulations to you. Uh, Not only today as you leave, now will will everyone be getting some flowers and family photos, but we're also going to have certificates that just congratulate you on surviving Romans chapter 6 and chapter 7 with Pastor Tim. Uh, Thanks for being gracious as we walk through this verse by verse. Many scholars say that Romans chapter 6 and chapter 7 are the deepest waters in the New Testament, and they certainly have been kind of mind-numbing at times. So today we tie a bow on Romans chapter 7, and today we're actually going to be looking at what is the most debated text in perhaps all of the Bible for certain in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 7, 14 through 25. And so we're going to walk verse by verse through it. Uh, but Paul's going to mention this over and over. He's going to talk about the law, he's going to talk about the flesh, and he's going to talk about the spirit and how all of those are working synergistically in your life simultaneously. So as we begin, we're going to begin in, in Romans chapter 14, uh, or sorry, chapter 7, 14 through 17. Uh, would you stand with me in honor of God's word? Let's stand in honor of God's word as we read this together, and then we're going to unpack it. So Romans seven fourteen begins with this. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold into sin. We've talked about sin throughout our study of Romans, and we've discovered that sin isn't just something that I do wrong. Sin isn't just whenever whenever I know the truth, but I tell a lie. That that certainly is sin. But sin, sin is much broader than that. Sin is much bigger than that. Sin is a force. Sin invades. Sin permeates. Sin wants to, to tear you down. Sin wants to control your life. Goes on to say in, in verse 15, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want to do, but I do the very thing I hate. And how many of us have said that this week? 
We're like, dang it, I didn't want to do that. Like, but ah, I, I did. What do I do with that? Verse 16, now, if I do not do what I want, I agree that the law is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Father, I pray today that you would speak to us through your word, that God, you would give us grace where grace is needed, that you would give us direction where new direction is needed, and that for all of us, you'd speak to us at our point of need. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can go ahead and have a seat. So he says, hey, in my spirit, like my spirit, man, I agree that the law is good. Like the law is from God. God is good. It's a gift from God. The law is holy, he's going to say. But he's talking about his, his flesh, like my body. Like there's just something going on. There's this tug of war. There's a gravitational pull in my flesh towards to, to pull me down into sin. But there's also at the same time this, this gravitational pull, the spirit to lift me up, to do what is honoring, what is right in God's sight. So the gravitational pull, the tug of war exists in all of us. Uh, so a couple of definitions I just want to give you real quick. What's the law? Uh, the first fill in the blank is the law. The law is God's universal standard of right and wrong. So when Paul's talking about the law, he's talking about in a very, very general, very broad sense in, in chapter 7 here. He's going to say that the law is holy, righteous, and good in verse 12. Verse 14, he said the law is spiritual. I mean, it comes from the Holy Spirit. And so God's law is, is perfect. And, and we understand this as followers of Jesus, that there are universal laws that govern our universe. And so some people might say, well, I, don't, I just don't believe that. Like, that's good for you, but I think that's old-fashioned. I'm not going to live under the oppressiveness of that, that worldview. And I would say that's fine, and that's fair for you to believe that, but, but you can also choose to not live under the oppression of, like, the law of gravity. Uh, but if you choose to dis disregard the law of gravity, it will hurt you in the long run, right? And I think disregarding God's laws, like, you can break God's law, like, you're a free will creature, you can do that. But the more you break God's law, the more you're going to be a broken person. Wise men throughout the ages have said that you can go against the grain of the universe, but you're going to get splinters. And that's true. And so God's law is good. It's this universal standard of right and wrong. When you lean into it, you feel alive and free. When you go against it, we feel broken. Second definition, he's going to talk about the flesh. And uh, the flesh is what pulls us down. The flesh. And so what, what is the flesh? When Paul uses the word flesh, he's not just talking about our, our physical body. Although the Bible does talk about the flesh in the physical sense. The psalmist wrote, the, my, my heart and flesh may fail me. Like my, I might get sick, I might die. But he says, God is the strength of my heart. Like my, my body might wear out. But, so he's not talking about that type of flesh though in context, not just your physical nature. The old version of the NIV translates it, your, your sinful nature. Um, Peter would define the flesh as this. It's our corrupt desires. Henry David Thoreau would write this. He says, we are conscious of an animal inside of us. It is a reptile and sensual and perhaps cannot be wholly expelled. So even secular writers understand like there's something inside of us that's just, just different. Dr. Eugene Peterson, a great scholar, defined flesh this way. The corruption that sin has introduced into our very appetites and instincts. And this ancient idea continues to find expression in modern day context as uh, Joe Rogan, when interviewing Elon Musk, talked about how, how we're all chimps. 
We have this chip nature inside of us, like this monkey instinct that, that is, is gross and, and, and wants to push against humanity and do its own thing and kind of rebel against what we know is good. Psychologists call this flesh or this sinful nature our shadow side. And so you have a, a good side that wants to please God, but psychologists would label this your, your, your shadow side, your corrupt side. And all of that gives us an idea of what the New Testament writers are referring to in context of Romans 7 as, as the flesh. It's this tug of war against my, my shadow side and my, my good side, my, my, my animal instinct and my godly instincts. And then he's going to talk about the spirit. And the spirit is what wants to pull us up. So the, the flesh wants to pull us down. The gravitational pull is downward. Spirit wants to lift us, lift us up. In, in Romans 7, 6, he says, we serve in the new way of the spirit. 7.22, he says, I delight in the law of God in my inner being, like in my spirit, the, who I am at my core. Uh, chapter 8, Paul's going to talk to us all about life in, in the spirit and how, how we wage, wage war against the flesh. How can we walk in the spirit and not in in the sinful nature. And so when Paul's talking about the spirit here, he's re referring to the deepest, strongest parts of you as a follower of Jesus that wants to please God. And so as a result, your flesh, your spirit are at odds with each other. And that's this internal tension that we as followers of Jesus experience. Now this next verse, I, I think Paul is talking to us as an honest Christian. And if you're not a Christian, you might be surprised to find out there are some honest Christians out there. Um, but an honest Christian, here's what Paul says, Romans 7, 18 through 20, says this. He says, for I, I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. So he's talking about his sinful nature, his shadow side. Nothing, nothing good dwells there. For I, I have this desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do what I want, but the evil I do not want, this is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. And here you have the most debated text in all of the New Testament. And this is where there is a fork in the road in theological thoughts and with different schools of thought. And so I don't want to bore you. I don't want to get too technical, but I want to give you an overview of the three primary schools of thought here when it comes to this text. And, and I would just say this at the onset, very smart people take adamantly opposing positions on this text. And so I reserve the right to be wrong and get smarter later. But uh, I'm just going to teach this text from my point of view. But here's the three, three points of view. Uh, the first point of view is that, that this is talking about a non-Christian. And this is in your notes. So the first blank there is this is a non-Christian. So some scholars say a Christian wouldn't behave this way. A Christian wouldn't have this experience because as followers of Jesus, you can reach a stage of perfection. Like you can go through this sanctification process and, and that's a $5 term if you're new with us. But we've been talking throughout Romans how salvation is really experienced in three parts. Uh, first is justification. This takes place in your past. At the moment you surrender your life to Jesus, you're, you're justified. That means your sins are forgiven, past, present, future. And the righteousness of Christ is given to your account, which is really awesome news. And that's where most people stop when they think about salvation. But, but, but salvation is more than that. Right here, right now, as followers of Jesus, we're in the sanctification process. And that's a big word that simply means we're striving to live life as Jesus lived. We're striving to live, live a holy life, a life that's set apart for God, interacting with people as if Jesus were us on a day-to-day -day basis. 
But then salvation is also experienced when you die, a glorification to come. And our, our, my friend, Kristen Potter, she's experienced the full scope of salvation. She experienced justification when she was little. Throughout her time on earth, she was in the sanctification process. Now she's experiencing glorification and experiencing the full scope of it with a glorified body. She doesn't have glasses anymore. No more arthritis, no more cancer. She's got a new body that will never wear out where she gets to worship a glorified king for a glorified eternity in a glorified heaven. And that's amazing. All that's yours in this one word, salvation. And so some people say, this is a non-Christian because, because this sanctification process here in the middle, you can reach a stage of perfection. And so, so some churches, primarily like holiness-type churches, Wesleyan church, um, Nazarene churches, uh, na- uh, some Pentecostal churches would primarily flow in this, this school of thinking uh, I, I started following Jesus in a Nazarene church, and I'm so thankful that I did because they challenged me in this sanctification process. I, I wanted to be saved, but I didn't really want to make Jesus the Lord of my life. But once I did and started saying, God, this is your word, it has authority to speak to me in places that feel uncomfortable to me, and I'm going to actually apply it to my life. I found freedom, y'all. Like, I, I, that's when I started thinking, God, you're real. Like, your word's true. I came alive. And I'm so thankful for that. But their school of thinking is that, that you, you receive the Holy Spirit at salvation, but then there's a second work of grace that takes place in a believer's life. The, the, the Spirit fills you for the purpose of holiness and so that you can overcome any vestige of sin in your life and reach a stage of, of perfection. That's the, the school of thought there. The second school of thought is that this is a cardinal Christian. Like this, the description we just read, like that's that, yes, maybe they're saved, but they're a very carnal Christian. Like they just, they want Jesus to be their forgiver, but they don't want Jesus to be their Lord. Uh, the best example, and maybe this is a poor example, but it's one I think that'll stick with you. Um, so I'm going to share it anyway. Um, is, is, have you been to a circus or like seen an elephant show? Like these big elephants, they like dance and do all these things. Like the elephants are the star of the show, right? But there's these dudes with these big buckets and shovels. They come behind the elephants and they're always scooping the, you know what I mean? The, scooping the mess, clean up the mess. And so for carnal Christians, they want to, they're the star of the show, but they just want Jesus to come behind them and clean up their mess. And there are followers of Jesus that live life this way. But I don't think that's what Paul's talking about in Romans chapter Seven, And so I don't think he's talking about the non-Christian or, or that this is Paul referring back, using a literary device, referring back to before he started following Jesus. I don't think he's talking about a carnal Christian who really doesn't want Jesus to be the Lord over their life. They just want Jesus to clean up their mess. I think Paul's just talking as an honest Christian. I think he's just saying, man, I, I struggle and I experience this tug of war in my heart, in my mind. I want to please God, but man, sometimes, sometimes I blow it. And I think, I think if we're honest, some of us land there, right? Like, like we're, we're not where we used to be. And like, gosh, we're so thankful for that. I remember I used to just triple my feet in that area and that area and that area. And I praise God, I'm not there today. But man, I see Jesus and that's the goal I'm striving for. And man, I got so much further to go. As we say here at Central, we are imperfect people. We're in progress. We're not who we used to be. We're not who we want to be. We know we're not who we will be one day, but we're kind of in the, the middle of that. 
We're new, but not perfect. We're in progress, but we haven't achieved perfection. And I don't know if you relate to that at all, but I think that's what Paul's talking about here in Romans 7. So that's where I'm going to teach from that, that vantage point. And so we're going to, he's going to talk about the old self versus the new self. That's the next fill in the blank there. Old self versus the new self. And he talks about it, Romans 7, 18 through 20. It says this. It says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. That's my old self. That's my shadow side. That's my, my sinful nature. For I, I have the desire to do what's right. That's the spirit man. That's the new self. But not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do what I want to do. But I want to keep. Uh, so he's saying like, hey, I want to I keep God's law. I, wanna, I, I know God's law is good. I know when I, I don't keep it, I'm going against the grain of the universe. And I don't want more splinters. But there's this tug of war. But the evil I do not want to do, this is what I keep on doing. For, for if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So Paul's saying, I know, I know who God created me to be, but I also know I have this shadow side, this, this sinful nature. That I want to live up in the spirit, not down in the flesh, but there's, there's tension there. And so what Paul's saying here is that for the Christian, God changes our nature and he changes our desires to such a degree that when we go down instead of up, we're miserable. We hate it. And I don't know, for some of you as followers of Jesus today, if you look back on your past, like you did some things that you're not super proud of today. I know for me, there's some things that I used to do in my past that I was, I was very proud of. And I, as a matter of fact, I brag about those things to my friends. But I'd be very ashamed to describe those to you on stage today. Because God's changed my desires. I'm not who I want to be yet, but, but I'm not who I used to be. And I'm super thankful for that. He's changed my desire. So the spirit's at work, but the flesh, I'm still in this, this earthly body. So throughout Romans, Paul's given us this comparison of like the old self, the flesh versus the new self in the spirit. So old self versus the new self. So, so you were unrighteous, but now you are righteous. We were enemies of God. Now we're friends of God. We were fallen in Adam, but we're raised in Christ. We were spiritually dead, but now we're spiritually alive. We were slaves to sin, but now we're free from sin. We were under law, but now we're under grace. We were in the flesh, but now we're in the spirit. So there's this old self and this new self, and they're always at odds with each other. And as the Indian proverb says, well, proverb goes, you know, there's, there's two wolves in a fight, right? They're fighting against each other. And the, the old sage says, hey, which wolf wins? And the great sage says, well, whichever wolf you feed. And so you can feed the old self, the flesh, or you can feed the spirit. And, and whichever one you feed the most is going to be the one that's dominant in your, in your life. So theologians or, or scholars, which simply means the study of, of God. Theos is God. Logos is, is, is study. So theology is the study of God. What, what they say is that now we live in this tension of, 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 of already, but not yet. Like it's already, it's as good as if it happened, but we haven't yet really, it hasn't been realized in our life. For example, Paul says things like, like you're seated with Christ in God. And you're like, I'm seated with Christ? Like I'm at the right hand of God right now? It sure feels like San Jose. Like it feels like I'm at Central Christian Church right now or I'm watching online. But what, what Paul's saying here, that God outside of the scope of time and space, it's as good as if it already happened. And so now we live with this, this idea, this, this tension of, yes, I'm holy, righteous, perfect in God's sight and in God's presence. 
but yet I'm still working out my salvation here on earth with fear and trembling, as, as Paul would describe. It's this tension of already, but not yet. The end is certain, but we're still in process. We're still in journey. But, but here's what I want you to know. It, it, your salvation is very certain. Like it is 110% sure. Like, like, like there will be a perfect you. There will be a new you, free from the flesh, free from the old self, a, a healed you, an unburdened you with Jesus, like Jesus, no longer fighting against the flesh, no longer fighting against the shadow side, fully alive in the kingdom, the best version of you. That's 110% certain for every follower of Jesus. Paul would write this, Philippians 1.6, I, and I'm sure of this, like I'm certain of this. I, I know that I know that I know that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. When? At the day of Christ Jesus. There's coming a day when, when this flesh will be put to rest and I'll be free from, from that tug of war match. And, and it's really hard for us to even fathom what that experience will be like because all we've known is life in this sinful flesh, but relationships will be totally different. Like, like your understanding of God will be totally different. Like your whole experience will be amazing. It'll be free. But now we live in this, this tug of war. And I think that's what Paul's communicating in Romans 7. So he closes by reminding us that the best is yet to come. Romans 7, 21 says this. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Like even when I have my, my best day, when I'm like, God, I'm going to please you. God, I'm going I'm to honor you. God, I'm not going to do that. I know evil's right there wanting to pull me back down because it's, it's just in me. It's in my, my flesh, Paul says. For I delight in the law of God, in my inner being, my true self, like my spirit man delights in God's law. But I see in my members, in my body, another law waging war against the law of my mind, making me a captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am. And that's where most scholars, you're like, Paul couldn't say that. Like, because wretched means like, incapable of doing anything right, like utterly worthless. And that is a very real definition of wretched. I would suggest, though, that Paul also wrote to his, his apprentice, Timothy, like, I'm the chief of sinners. And so there's something about this sanctification journey that the closer we get to God, the more holy and awesome we see that God is, the more painfully aware of our shortcomings we become. Like, like we might not do that anymore, but man, I still get angry sometimes, and I hate that. I fly off the handle for no reason. Sometimes I do that, and ah, just... I'm not proud of that. I'm not, I'm not doing grotesque things like, like I used to maybe, but I'm still, I haven't reached perfection. Wretched, interesting word there. It can also, in secular Greek, it's also used in context of like a warrior coming home from battle. Like he's been in the fight and he's just beat up and worn out and he's just dragging his shield and sword home in the journey. And I think that's what Paul's talking about. I think he's talking about as a man who's weary from being in the fight. Weary man that I am, worn out man that I am, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Again, it's this flesh that's always at odds, always pulling him down. So he's like, who, who can rescue me from that? Verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, my, my spirit man, who I really want to be, but my flesh, I serve the law of 
sin. Now, I don't want to beat you up, but build you up today. So how do you know if you're in the fight? Because I think that's a question. A logical question is, man, if, I, if I'm not doing what I'm supposed to do, am I, am I really a follower of Jesus? How do, I know I'm in the, how do I know I'm in the fight? A couple thoughts on that, questions, I guess. Uh, do you have the desire that wants to do what God says? Like, I know what God's word says, and I, I really want to live it out. If so, I'd say you're in the fight. Do you believe that the Bible's God's word and like God's word has authority to, to guide your life? If so, I would suggest you're in the fight. Is your inner being sometimes at war with your flesh, with your outer, with the, the old man, as Paul would say? If so, I would say you're, you're in the fight. Do you know what's right in your mind and get frustrated when you don't live it out? Then you're in the fight. Do you hate it? Uh, do, you, do you hate who you, you were or who you are in the flesh, but, but you love who you are you, when you're alive in the spirit? Like whenever you please the spirit, you, you experience love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Do you love that? Or, or whenever you, you feed the flesh and you indulge on it, do you, do you despise that? If so, I would say you're in the fight. I would say this, before I became a Christian, man, I would, I indulge, like it felt good, yes. Do I think it would bring me happiness? Yes. If one is good, I'll take 10. That, that's just my, I was just wired that way. And I didn't think twice about it. But now when I indulge the flesh, I'm like, oh, I've disappointed you. I've disappointed myself. I felt we were so close. Now I feel like, we're, and I know it's in my mind, but gosh, are you grieved by that? If so, you're in the fight. Do you sometimes feel beat up and worn out? from your battle with the flesh, with the shadow side of you? If so, I'd say you're in the fight. And Paul closes with thanks. Thanks for, for God who's, who's working in him, for God who's rescued him, for God who's now sanctifying, for God who's now one day gonna glorify him. He says this, verse 24 and 25, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Over and over and over again, Paul keeps coming back to this. Jesus Christ is Lord. And so the final question I have, are you thankful that Jesus Christ is Lord? Like Lord over all. Are you thankful for that? If so, then I would just encourage you to say, you're in the fight and keep fighting. Paul, he, he closes with that, reminding us that Jesus Christ is He's Lord. And so I would just, as we close out our, our, this section of Romans chapter 7, we're going to take a break for the summer. I'm excited. We're going to be studying uh, the Beatitudes, part of the Jesus' Sermon on the Mount throughout the summer months. It's going to be awesome. We're going to pick back up Romans chapter 8 in the fall, in September. Uh, but you can read ahead, and Paul's going to begin, just continue that line of thought, read it this week. Paul's going to unpack for you uh, how do you wage war the, with the spirit and with the flesh. And ultimately, where he's going to land is it's your thoughts. Like the mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the spirit is life and peace, he's going to say. And so, so guard your thoughts, guard your minds. But, but just want to remind us that, that Jesus is Lord, how Paul's been coming back to this over and over and over and over again. So quickly as we close, I'm going to walk you through Romans chapter 1 through Romans chapter 14. It's going to be quick, I promise. Romans 1.4 says, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God by power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. 
one seven uh, to all those in Rome and in San Jose and all of you watching online who are loved by God and are called to be saints, grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter four, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sins. Chapter five, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God, how? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter five and verse 10, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more now having been reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received reconciliation. Chapter five and verse 20, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more so that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness leading to eternal life. How? Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Chapter 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. How? In Jesus Christ, our Lord. Chapter 7, 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Chapter 8, for I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demon, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Chapter 10, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Never be lazy, but work hard to serve the Lord enthusiastically. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Chapter 14, if we live, we live to honor the Lord. If we die, we die to honor the Lord. So whether we live or we die, we belong to the Lord. Christ died and rose again for this very purpose to be Lord of both the living and the dead. Aren't you grateful that Jesus Christ is Lord? Yeah. It's all about him. So there's you, there's the law, and then there's Jesus Christ, the Lord, who is your advocate. Let's pray. Father, we thank you.